today I'm going to be uh, teaching Sunday School on the Ethics of Hell, which I thought was a strange way to think about the doctrine or the biblical theological teaching in Scripture on eternal punishment and hell. Um, but I assumed, without asking, that the question regarding ethics would have to do with something like probably the most often quoted reason why many people reject uh, the God revealed in the Bible is they ask the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? Now you'll often hear it said, how can a good God, a God who is essentially good and a God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, allow evil and suffering in his world. But today, since I'm speaking on the ethics of hell, it probably follows that uh, a great number of people um, struggle with this, both inside and outside the church. And it's interesting that someone as prominent and influential as John Stott, who I learned a lot from, uh, reading his books regarding preaching and other topics, struggled with this subject to where before he died, he said at best he was agnostic about hell, meaning he didn't know for sure, but that he thought, he, le he leaned toward uh, the doctrine of annihilation, that people are utterly destroyed and cease to exist. Now, if you think about the doctrine of hell for very long, it's very sobering. And it's been a hard week, because any time I throw myself into the study of something like the doctrine of hell, <clears throat> almost immediately people I know come into my mind who I know have either died without Christ or who are alive right now without Christ. And the grief of my soul is, how in the world can you look at a person like that and not feel deeply moved at God's grace towards you on the one hand and the terror of the Lord on the other. That's why Paul says, because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So in starting this, first I'd like to pray and then open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And what I'm teaching you is a revision of the outline in the back because I revised it, revised it again, printed it, came in this morning, said, well, it's kind of like what I'm going to talk about. So if I don't cover something in it, uh, don't be alarmed. Uh, you have access to me if you have a question. Although we have to quit promptly at 10 after 10 because we will be watching together some videos from the Women's Resource Center that we promised them we would show. With that said, uh, Mark Anderson, would you open us in prayer, please?
Amen. Um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is talking about uh, Christ's second coming and the judgment that will ensue, yet at the same time trying to encourage the people at Thessalonica who are suffering. And beginning in verse 7, he says, and I'm beginning in the middle of a verse, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so scripture is very clear that there is judgment and that that judgment carries with it the connotations of eternal punishment. And so what I want to do today is talk to you about the Christian doctrine of hell with a sensitivity toward the question at the top of your outline. And the Christian doctrine of hell could be summarized as a real place ruled by God when all who are found out outside of Christ at death or at his return experience the eternal conscious pain of punishment, banishment, and destruction. And so it's impossible to even contemplate a statement like that that is so frank and sober without a number of theological and pastoral questions and issues coming to the fore. The way that people have attempted to deal with the doctrine of hell rather than accepting it as something that is eternal punishment is throughout the history of the church in different shades and ways, people have said that hell is really annihilation. Uh, And annihilation would be utter destruction to cease to be. Uh, you see the word nihil in it is, means nothing. So a person goes into nothingness. Another doctrine that people have used to sort of dull the sharp edges, and these are both heretical in my opinion, is the doctrine of universalism, that there is a hell, but it will be empty. And these people in saying that every single person will ultimately be saved because Christ's work will count for them in that on the day of judgment and in the face of their lives being exposed, they will of their own accord repent. And uh, I would say a third one would be purgatory. And purgatory is based on purging, which has to do with cleansing a, belie a, a person who quasi-believes when they're in this life, this is a Catholic doctrine, and they go to a place called purgatory until either people pay and pray them out or their sins are purged where they can eventually graduate to heaven. It's sort of a halfway house second chance. The problem is that, that, and that are not consistent with what the Bible says, period. They're just not. And some of you may entertain in some of your 
uh, weak moments, the thought that, well, maybe that's true, and maybe my mother or father or someone who's very dear to me who never believed in Jesus uh, will get a second chance or a third chance or whatever. But that's just not what the Bible teaches. So let's talk about this moment because this question, how can a loving God send people to hell, is loaded with presuppositions that are just wrong when you look at the Bible. First, let's talk about the justice of God. In Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 48, Jesus states that those who do not deal radically with their sin will be thrown into hell for eternity where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A moment's reflection here on just what I've read so far raises the issue of God's justice. How can sin committed by a finite creature in time be punished with infinite consequences for eternity? That is, people raise the issue of it's unfair, God is unjust, and St. Augustine commented on these verses by saying, who would not tremble hearing from divine lips such a repetition and so vigorous a declaration of that punishment? While we may not agree in substance, perhaps we can at least empathize with those who struggle to reconcile how God can damn someone to hell for eternity for sins committed only in this lifetime. The Christian response to that objection consistently has been both complex and, and really sensitive. It's complex because there is no one verse that provides a clear explanation as to why God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to create an eternal hell for sinners. It is sensitive because many of us will have loved ones who have departed, and this would certainly offer no hope in their position before God. But let's talk about the concept of ongoing sin, ongoing sin. In addressing the issue of the justice of God, it has been proposed that one of the two texts in the New Testament may hint of ongoing sin in hell. Revelation 16 verse 9 describes the response of those who receive God's true and just judgment. It says in verse 7, they cursed the name of God and did not repent or give him his glory. This may at least suggest why hell is eternal punishment. However, the argument holds together only by logical deduction, since the text concerns the time before ultimate final judgment. Moreover, the issue raises the question of whether sin can continue in hell since, as some argue, Christ's death reconciles all things to himself, which for them necessarily entails the cessation of sin. It is not the cosmic uh, rev revolution, reconciliation that involves salvation per se, but rather pacification when all things are brought into harmony with God. And so ultimately, the doctrine of reconciliation does not eliminate the fact that sin continues in hell. Another thing that is often brought up when we're thinking of the justice of God, and there's so much more we can say, and I will try to say in the time I have, what are the some, there are some texts in the New Testament that suggest degrees of punishment, uh, especially in the future judgment, uh, 
the idea that the punishments are duly measured according to the crime committed. For example, in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48, um, Jesus speaks of people be, being uh, beaten with different degrees of severity. This correlates with Jesus' claim on the day of judgment uh, will be more bearable for some than others in Matthew 11. Everyone in whom much was given, much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, those who have been given more knowledge and more responsibility in what they do with that knowledge or have more responsibility with what they do with that knowledge in the day of judgment and the subsequent experience of that sentence in hell will be more bearable, as it were, for an Amazonian Indian who's never heard of Jesus than for a son reared in a Christian home who knew and heard the gospel but trampled the Son of God underfoot. Now that's scary. I once told a man in my first church in Mount Lebanon, Tennessee, which is right outside my hometown, and uh, he was well known for not coming to church and well known for hating every pastor. And so I thought he'd be a good guy to go see. <laughs> and so I knocked on his door and I already knew him and knew his family. And so I came in the house and I started talking to him and uh, he just let loose on me uh, something terrible, something uh, just really went at me hard. And yet he had claimed, on the one hand, to be a Christian. He just didn't want to go to church. And you know what I told him? I said, Mr. John, if you never intend to repent of your sins and you never intend to ever get right with God and come back to the church, don't ever come to church again. And he looked at me. He said, well, I never heard a pastor say something like that. And I said, you're heaping condemnation upon yourself by coming and sitting under the gospel and refusing to believe it. You're only exposing yourself to more severe punishment. Now, that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. But it's true. And all the more, those of us who have children who do not believe, uh, it shakes us up, and it should. As difficult a truth is, at least suggests that God's future punishments are not random or disproportionate or thoughtless. They are measured and appropriate. However, these thoughts do not believe us, bring us really any closer to resolving the issue of how a finite sin can result in an infinite punishment for an eternity in hell. And as with all Christian doctrines, a number of key biblical texts and theological truths need to be held together in order to have a framework in which to understand God's justice in hell. First, let's talk about God's sovereignty and love. First, besides the fact that the Bible speaks of God as utterly sovereign over all things, declaring the end from the beginning, he is also, it also presents him as a deeply personal and infinite being, uh, and infinitely loving. 
The God of the Bible is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He stands toward his rebellious world, a world that has given him the finger more often than once. Why will you die? I have no pleasure, God says, in the death of the wicked. Incarnate, the Lord Jesus felt anguish over Jerusalem's stubborn rebellion. But let's also consider the doctrine of human responsibility. I don't really like to talk about the term free will because it's so easily misunderstood. I'd rather talk about human responsibility. The Bible is clear that human beings are responsible for our actions and culpable for, our, for its consequences. For example, Jesus longed to gather Jerusalem uh, and its children together, but they would not, Luke says. All day long, God holds his, out his hand of salvation to disobedient and contrary Jews who refuse to believe in the Messiah, Romans 10:21. The reason for their final lost estate then is not due to any lack of willingness in God, but rather stubborn rebellion of their own hearts. In other words, in the Bible, when someone is saved, it's all God's doing, and when someone is lost, it is his or her, or however you multiply pronouns, they're doing. <laughs> and that doesn't get you to escape from that. And so that's just cold, hard facts regarding the responsibility of people. You see, a person who asks a question, how can a loving God send uh, people to hell uh, misunderstand the fact that we're not talking about neutral human beings living in this world. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't use the outline that I'm you have in your hand is because I was going to talk about the philosophical theory of natural consequence, but it aggravated me so much to even talk about it because it's a philosophical concept that considers everybody neutral toward God. Everybody's not neutral toward God. Everybody's born with a bias and a heart and an enmity toward God and his law. We're born sinners. And so if you're someone who has struggles with this question, it's okay to struggle with it in my opinion. It's okay to doubt it. It should require us all to dig deeper. But let's talk about the greatness of God and the heinousness of sin. When we go to the Bible to understand who God is and we have a God-centered view of sin, which when held together suggests it's not the length of our sin that determines the degree of God's just punishment, but the height and heinousness of our sin against the being of God. R.C. Sproul said a long time ago that all sin is cosmic treason. And it is. It is when you consider who God is. The essential thing is the degree of blameworthiness comes not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. It's, in, in a sense, an infinite sin because it's created against an infinite being of glory and power and greatness. And so, admittedly, there's no biblical text which we may prove this propositional statement, but there's no single text that even talks about the Trinity or Christ's imputed righteousness as clearly as some may want. 
As mentioned above, these doctrines and the truth proposed are arrived by holding together a number of biblical texts and truths in tension. And so let me say as we continue, the supremacy of God and the seriousness of sinning against him as seen through the lenses of scripture comes to us essentially in the first commandment which makes it plain that God alone is to be worshiped. God is described as thrice holy, whose glory fills the whole earth. No other attribute of God is emphasized as much in the Bible. Nowhere do we read that God is love, 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 or just, 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 but in both Testaments, he is described as holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is his golden attribute that colors all of the other attributes. He is holy love. His justice is holy justice. God's holiness is his utter otherness and godness so real and so intense that even the cherubim, angelic creatures, fly before him covering their faces and their feet. These are not fallen creatures. They are innocent creatures, cover their face and the feet because he is approachable, unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light, First Timothy says. His eyes are too pure to behold evil, and he cannot look upon sin in an approving way. As fallen human beings, we would have more chance of coming within an inch of the sun in our solar system and surviving than we would coming into a million miles of the light of this holy God and live to tell about. The intensity of God's holiness is highlighted in what we just studied a couple of weeks ago. Uzzah reaching out to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling, and yet he struck dead. Why such extreme punishment for such a simple transgression? God's answer is, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, that is seen as holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. In short, God cannot be stroked. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. That's a C.S. Lewis quote. In this, is this an aspect of God that we have lost in our modern churches? Do our Christian gatherings convey the weightiness of being in the presence of a holy God? Until they do, we will never appreciate the justice of God in hell. Because in Scripture, when people sin, the issue is the dignity of the God whom they have sinned against. David cries out after committing adultery with Bathsheba, Against you, you only, have I sinned. All sin, in essence, is first against God, even if it's committed toward another person. Why is murder wrong? Because you're attempting to destroy, you are destroying and killing the image of God. That's why we're, uh, the destruction, even abortion itself, in my judgment, is against the sanctity of life. It's against God, ultimately, destroying his image. And so... <laughs> I like the way, uh, I don't like it, but it's true the way that uh, R.C. Sproul used to argue all the time that sin is cosmic treason. You don't know who we have to do with. Just because we have such a lack of knowledge of who God is and his glory and his greatness and his majesty and his power and everything about him, 
that we have such a, a, a weak view of his justice and holiness. In summary, when it comes to punishment for sin, what the Bible says is something rather simple yet profound. A great and glorious God in infinite worth made us, and therefore we owe him great and glorious and infinite worship. If we do not worship him, then the consequences are of infinite magnitude. God is the most infinitely lovely, beautiful, excellent, and glorious, and majestic, and winsome, delightful, wonderful being in the whole universe. As our creator, we are under infinite obligation to love him, to obey him, to honor him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. That is our chief end, the reason for our being our ultimate telos. But if we choose to turn away from that infinite obligation, then our sin is infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. Do we really think the teenage boy, <laughs> and this uh, is relevant since the queen just died, uh, the queen of England, who, by the way, I admired a great deal do you really think that a teenage boy who punches his brother in the face should receive the exact same punishment for punching the queen of england in the face and when it comes to god he does not differ from the queen in degree but in kind surely this is what jesus presupposes when he correlates sin by finite creatures to infinite punishment in hell in Mark chapter 9, the severity of the punishment for sin is directly proportional to the importance of the relationship and the height of the dignity of the one we have offended. And so we have dealt somewhat with the concept of justice for hell being what the Bible says it is. Now, there's more to say, and you need to listen fast. Let's talk about God's justice in the gospel. Because if you're talking to a person about this question, what a wonderful opening to talk about the gospel. Fourthly, the issue of God's justice in hell is inseparably tied up with his justice in the gospel. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, Paul states something that is not often heard in churches today. You will hear it here. God setting forth Christ as a propitiation, a God-appeasing sacrifice, was first and foremost to vindicate his own reputation. Paul explains the double dilemma that God faced, his seeming negligence, for sins committed by Old Testament saints in the past and his justification of sinners in the present. Both brought God's justice into question. Throughout the Old Testament, God had reiterated again and again and again his just punishment for sin and his absolute willingness to acquit the wicked. Yet throughout the Old Testament, believers appear to get off scot-free. We look at some of the things like Abraham or David or others have done. Thus, the issue for Paul and God is not how can God forgive a guilty sinner, but rather how can God forgive a guilty sinner and remain just at the same time and uphold his justice? This is the dilemma that the cross of Christ answers. In Christ's death, 
God punishes the sins of all his people, past, present, and future, to prove to the world that he is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. In that one death, God accomplishes both the vindication of his own name and the justification of sinners who believe in his name. God's desire to vind himself, vindicate himself from any accusation of injustice is very important to him. And so the concept of propitiation tells us that either you are going to receive the justice of God for rejecting him and, and sinning against him, or Jesus is going to receive the justice of God for your sin. Either you're going to pay for it or he paid for it. And if he paid for it, there ain't no double jeopardy. Christ paid for it in full, therefore you can have assurance that forever you are right and under the favor of God. That's what the cross accomplishes. He propitiates the wrath of God by having the wrath of God poured. God propitiates himself. <laughs> that's the teaching of the Bible, and that's why the gospel is good news, and that's why there's no other good news, certainly not in religion where we try to atone and propitiate God on the basis of trying to be good people. And so when you think of the concept of justice, it's all dependent on God's justice in the gospel, the joy of having your sins forgiven and the assurance that we are really saved on the last day are based on the assumption of the illegitimacy of a double payment for sin. That's why I won't have to answer for my sin. Paul employs from the greater to the lesser argument in Romans 5, 6 to 10, where he uh, demonstrates that Christ's atoning work on the cross is the basis for the believer's absolute certainty of escaping God's final judgment. If we've been justified by Christ's death in the present, how much more will we be justified in the future since the payment has already been paid? Now, in sum, the gospel itself demonstrates God's commitment to his own justice, then why would we not affirm God's justice in hell since Christ's death is the payment made to rescue believers from hell? Christ's wrath-appeasing death and the punishment of hell equate to the same thing. Since God is so just that he will not punish the same sin twice, the issue becomes... A case of either or. Either a person is willing to accept Jesus' just payment for our sins or they choose to justly pay for their own sins in hell themselves. It is God's justice in the gospel that should enable us to affirm his justice with the doctrine of hell. Hell exists to display God's good and perfect justice. The question is whether we have a God-centered enough view of God to accept this. John Piper, who I agree with about half the time, has said that an, as evangelicals, we are willing to have a God-centered view, it seems, as long as God is man-centered. <laughs> I agree with that. The point is perceptive that hell is a good test for just how God-centered we are. While these points may not lessen the emotional weight of hell, 
it may begin to uh, lessen the dilemma for us in this question a little bit. God is perfect. Justice and mercy are not abstractions. They originate in him. They are adjectives. They are his adjectives. Henry Blocher, a French theologian, says, Justice and love are one in God and the same fire of holy passion. We cannot yet see that truth. We do not know how to reconcile the perfection of divine mercy, the bliss of the redeemed, and the torment of the lost. But we do not presume to teach our Lord lessons on love, but we do know him. Our disarmed faith knows God, and it's sufficient. Affirming the justice of God and the doctrine of hell is also essential when affirming or proclaiming the greatnesses of God's love in the gospel. Which brings us to another and final conclusion. And I got five minutes to do this, so here we go. The love of God. Let's talk about the love of God. It is only when we have grasped God's justice in Christ's death that we can fully appreciate the love of God displayed in that same death. For one can only speak of God's love, his gracious, unmerited favor toward us, if we first understand what he had to give in order to save us. God gave, God himself gave himself in the person of his son in order to save us from himself. That'd be worth memorizing. God himself gave himself in order to save us from himself. R.C. R.C. probably used to do this all the time. Well, who's going to save you from God? Who's going to save you from God? You need to be saved from God. And I remember the first time I ever heard him say that, I thought, who is this man? <laughs> and where doth he come from? I mean, he was, that was strange to me as a student. But it's true. What necessitated this, this giving was God's justice. A justice bound up integrally with his own nature. Sin must be punished. What motivated this giving was God's love, a sovereign free love arising from his own nature, not from any attraction in us, the objects of his love. And why did God choose to act in such a way? Because that's the kind of God he is, a just and loving God. More specifically, this giving involves Christ enduring on the cross, the Father's unrestrained wrath against sinners, pains and agonies of hell that would take the world and eternity to endure were poured upon Jesus in that one horrific moment. You say, well, I don't know how. Well, there's mystery in everything because we're the finite trying to grasp the infinite and we're sinners trying to grasp the holy and you'll never hit the bottom of it. You can try. I've been trying for 45 years or longer. Actually longer than that. Pains and agonies of hell were poured out upon Jesus in one horrific moment. And this is the love of God. For the God who is angry at us and from whom we deserve eternal hell it's the same God who loved us and sent his son to endure the whole of wrath divine. What is echoed in hell is not only the justice of God on those who are present, but also the infinite amazing love of God lavished on those who are absent. 
Out of the darkness on the cross, Jesus cried the cry of desolation so that we would never have to cry the cry of desolation in hell. He took our hell so we could spend eternity in heaven. If we take hell out of Christianity, then we divest Christ's death of everything that destroys the brilliance of God's amazing love. The dilemma of God's love and the doctrine of hell is not therefore how can a loving God send people to hell. Rather, it is this. Why would a just God ever rescue rebels from punishment in hell? The answer is left a mystery, a mystery that should lead to worship where all proper theological reflection ends. Theology should always end in doxology. So, I'm glad we don't have any time for questions. I'm not sure I covered all of these questions on your outline. I think I kind of did. I had something more specific originally planned, but uh, you ever, I don't know if you ever, I know this, women bake cakes, they look fine to me, but they'll dump them because they don't look right and taste right to them. I would never do that, by the way. I would just eat it and suffer. But guys like me who prepare classes sometimes look at what I've spent the whole week preparing and go, I don't want to teach that. I didn't really want to teach this, but I thought this was better than what I originally looked at. And I hope it at least deals with the justice of God and the ethical problem of the doctrine of hell. If it didn't, Dave, you can correct me and tell me, uh, do it again, but talk about this. Now, we could also talk about those who have never heard the gospel. You hear that all the time. How could God send pagans? people that live in the jungles, never heard the gospel, how can he send them to hell? Um, Romans chapter 1 will answer that question for you, verses uh, 17 to the end of the chapter will tell you how God deals with that issue.